it can be easy to get lost in the depth of the content. When we pull back and take a look at the whole of Scripture, we can even make that a little bit worse and, and get lost in the, the enormity of what is going on. So when we read those stories, and it makes it a little bit difficult to apply how something millennia ago that happened, how can that actually apply to me? But then also when we step back and we see the enormity of this one meta-narrative, this plan, it's really easy to get lost and not feel that personal application, that personal invitation that comes from Scripture. Now, if you're like me, this has been a hurdle for me. I'm not sure where I am. I'm like, I guess I'm kind of, I'm in the midst of clearing the hurdle. But, but that hurdle is seeing myself in the story. The hurdle is thinking that, that it's really, it really is about me. I can see a bunch of you out there, and at least half of you I could see, like, this totally would apply to them. Like, that makes sense to me. That's kind of a joke. That's, thank you. But it's easy for me to see how this could be true for other people. It's really easy for me to see how this could be true, how this, how this invitation could be extended to other people. But it's difficult sometimes for, for that to make sense for me, because I know me. And so th that hurdle is, is seeing the, that invitation to me, seeing me in this story, looking at this and saying, man, the, the one that, that created all of that out there, the one that gave us this, was thinking about me. It makes sense to me that he was thinking about you. It's more difficult for me to think that he was thinking about me. Now, the way that we present stories in Scripture, if we don't personalize, the, personalize these, folks like me can kind of self-select us out of the narrative when this narrative is about all of us. We can back ourselves into a corner, though, also with the way that we talk about selfishness. If you've been here for any length of time, you've heard me rail on selfishness. We talk about that a lot. It is something that, that also, the way that, that, that I talk about selfishness from this stage can be to our own detriment. It's not always a good thing to rail on selfishness. Think about, about how what I just presented as a hurdle, and then this, this idea of, of railing against selfishness, how they don't actually, they don't go together. Because if I, if I tell you to make this story a personal story, but then I also tell you don't be selfish, we end up in this conundrum of like, well, how far is too far? When do I cross the line of selfishness? Thinking about self is not always selfish. Ignoring the deeply personal reality of the gospel is an incomplete presentation of the reality of God. Now, also, balancing that out, you have heard or will hear me talk a lot about the importance of community. I talked about it last week when we talked about small groups. And so we see that there is a, a, a both-and here 
of, of self and community. We, we see that, that scripture is meant to be applied to the collective rather than to the individual. We see how the church together is, is God's chosen instrument, his chosen mechanism for activity, not the individual, but the church is his chosen mechanism for activity in this historical age. I also like to point out that in the New Testament, most of the U's that we read, the Y-O-U, these are plural, they're not singular. And so this is meant to be applied together as, as a collective body of Christ. I often say that there is no such thing as an anti-church Christian. You're also going to hear me say often that there is no Lone Ranger option for following Jesus. This is not something that can be done alone. Individualism must be killed because individualism is just a softer word for selfish. And so we have to hold these things in tension. Those things that I say about community, I say because they're true. I say them because when we're on the journey of discipleship, when we're on this journey of looking like Jesus, if we don't find ourselves operating as a part of the body of Christ, if we don't find ourselves dependent on others that are also dependent on us, then we're really not in the path that Jesus set for us. Pseudo-Christian culture has created uh, or has, the, the, the pseudo-Christian culture that has been created tells us that it's possible to be close to God without being close to people. That we can worship God solo. That we can neglect collective worship. That it's possible to love God in an individual way. It's possible to love God and have that expressed in a unique matter that is private and personal. None of those things are true. Loving God means loving people. Loving people means life in the church. But we can't start there. At least I couldn't start there. Because I needed to know that I was part of the story. The truth is that at least for me, if my relationship with God does not start out with the knowledge that all of this scripture, the very plan of God was a plan for me, I will never get to the place where I can be for other people. The letter to the Ephesian church places the plan of God into the personal application of identity and destiny. Rather than just being a general plan for all of us, the plan is a specific plan for specific people. God not just wanting creation with all wanting reconciliation with all creation, but God wanting reconciliation with you individually and us collectively. Within the general, 
we find the personal. And when we forget the personal, we shouldn't be surprised when we forget the personal that the gospel becomes impersonal. Now, we balance all of that. We never want to indulge a selfish application of Scripture, right? It's important for us to know that our relationship with God, our ability to have relationship with God is no accident, but what we do with that is that we become like Christ, and Christ is uh, about the ministry of reconciliation, and so it, it calls us into something for others. But the starting place is for us. So make no mistake, as we go through this letter to the church in Ephesus, I am not opening the door to self-indulgence. This is not a, a license to operate with a me-first mentality. What we're doing is recognizing the beauty of the letter written to the Ephesian church and how Paul presents the reality of the gospel for each person, and then he calls them to a relationship with God that's evidenced by assuming their place in the body of Christ in the church. So Paul, over the next several weeks, is going to testify to what Jesus has done for us. It is going to, it's going to call us to party. We are going to celebrate when we read what Jesus did for us. There's nothing else we can do but celebrate. We're also going to see him call us to respond to the destiny that God has for each of us individually and together as a family. A family that is sold out for the family business. So, Join me in Ephesians as we get going. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 1. This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of, G of Christ Jesus. I am writing to God's holy people in Ephesus who are faithful followers of Christ Jesus. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. Paul has a way of cramming a lot into short verses. There is a lot there. And at first glance, it may not seem like a lot, but this really does set the tone for everything that we're going to talk about in the next 12 weeks. What we have here is the first presentation of a major key to this letter. Identity. Identity is a spiritual battleground. If you don't believe me, turn on the news. Identity is a spiritual back, uh, battleground. And when identity is corrupted, nothing isn't corrupted. This really is a linchpin. If identity is corrupted, nothing remains uncorrupted. What we get when identity is corrupted is chaos. When we don't know who we are, when we don't know who others are in relation to us, what we have is chaos. Chaos is the lack of order when the very question of who we are is contested, chaos results. So think about, for some of us that have that, that graveyard of, of half-read self-help help books at home, many of them on, those, on our bookshelves deal with recovering, creating, or recreating identity. 
This is something that even goes into the secular world. Identity is a huge issue. This is also where the lying tongue of the enemy of God attacks humanity by inserting confusion into the question of who we are, who God is, and who we're called to be. Henry Nouwen, uh, a pastor and author that, that still speaks to me through his works, captures this when he confronts the lies of identity. The lies of identity that we find in our culture. The idea that you are what you have. The idea that you are what others say about you. The idea that you are what you say about you. Or the lie that you are what you do or what you have done. These lies lay waste to those that don't know the love of God. They destroy lives that don't know the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. These lies of identity are present here even in this body. There are some of us that, that struggle with this, that we find our identity in what other people say about us. There are some of us that find our identity in what we say about ourselves. For some, identity is found in what we have or what we have done. The battleground is real. And Paul writes this letter to clear that battleground. Paul demonstrates that he knows the power of God. He knows the power of identity in the way that he opens up this letter. The demonstration of power is in this word, a two-letter word, of. Before we unpack the power of the, the, the word of, let's take, another, let's take a look at another word that Paul uses. Also a powerful word. We have of, and we have chosen. Being chosen is pretty cool. Being chosen is pretty powerful. If you've ever been chosen, unless it was like for jury duty, chosen is pretty awesome. In this opening to the letter, he says, chosen by the will of God. The depth of that statement cannot be overstated. Chosen by the will of God. God makes the selection of Paul based not on Paul's will, but on God's will. Not because anything that, that Paul had done or could do, Paul didn't earn the selection. Paul did not earn his chosenness. Paul has no power in this. And this is a good thing for Paul. It's a good thing for all of us. Because if being chosen by God was based on our own merit, we don't have a chance. We don't have a chance. If Paul were chosen by his own merit, he wouldn't have had a chance. If you know the story of Paul, then you know that, that Paul was a Jewish political leader. I, I intentionally say 
Jewish political leader. He was also a religious leader. But more than a religious leader, he was a religious terrorist. He was, was one of the, the earliest persecutors of the church. And so when we think about what, re, what religious fanaticism does, the terrorism that it creates, Paul fits really well into that mold. Paul was a religious terrorist. The inbreaking of the gospel of Jesus into Paul's life came at a moment that is informative to us when we talk about identity and chosenness. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 2 says this. Meanwhile, Saul, just the Hebrew name for Paul, was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest. He, he requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any of the followers of the way he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. Paul was a man full of hate. Think of, of this. I mean, this is, this is crazy. I don't know if you've ever done this. I, I know that I have, and so I don't, I'm not going to lay any judgment on Paul. But uttering threats with every breath. Have you ever been so angry with somebody, or, or even this, this dirty, ugly word, hate? Have you ever hated some, somebody so much that you are preoccupied to the point where you're just uttering about them? You're just muttering about what they've done. This, this preoccupation that, that, like, just for me, I would find myself, like, muttering in the shower. Just, like, the water's gone cold and I'm still muttering. Nobody's ever felt that? I'll tell you, it sucks. It just, like, like it robs all the life out of you. The feeling inside when you have this. This is what Paul has. He is, he is so filled with hate for people that, that know Jesus. Every, everything that comes out of his mouth is a curse. He is an angry dude. And he takes it a step further. He's not just full of hate. He's uttering threats. He's not just uttering threats. He's carrying those threats out into activity. What we see here is his moving into Damascus when he's already done this in Jerusalem. He's already arrested and killed Christians. And he wants to export his terrorism. And so he gets some letters that give him the authority to go to Damascus to do the same. In Damascus, what he did in Jerusalem. Consider how we would describe Paul's identity in this moment. If we were to use just Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 2, as the description of his identity, especially if we were to apply the lies of identity that Henry Nouwen teaches us, imagine how we would describe Paul's identity at this point in time. What is he living for? Who is he living for? What is the destiny of a life that's lived for those things. I can see chaos. I can see conflict. I can see a lack of peace. 
that ever-present reality that there is conflict with somebody at every moment. Some of us have lived that way. Some of us are coming out of a time like that where everything is in chaos, everything is in conflict. Never order, always relational conflict. Think of the stench that comes off the lives of people that, are li- that live in chaos and conflict. And then we also think that the ones that he hates are the ones that have found Jesus. His hate is directed at the followers of the way, and the way is Jesus. And so if we look at Paul being chosen for his own merit, it's clear he doesn't deserve to be chosen by God. Let's jump back into Paul's story in Acts chapter 9. Getting back in at verse 3, as he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down upon him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up, go into the city, and you'll be told what what you must do. The men with Saul stood speechless, for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but saw no one. Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. He remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. Now there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord spoke to him in a vision, calling, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord said, go over to Straight Street to the house of Judas. When you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying to me right now. I have shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so he can see again. And now identity is at play because Ananias knows who this guy is. But Lord exclaimed Ananias. I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem. And he is authorized by the leading priest to arrest anyone that calls upon your name. But the Lord said, go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings as well as to the people of Israel. And I will show them how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Ananias just made the point for us. Rather than seeing Paul as an image bearer of the creator God, he sees him through the lie of identity that Paul is what he has done. He sees a religious terrorist. He sees a murderer. He sees someone who is dangerous. He's killing people like me, and you're telling me to go to him? What Jesus says, though, is our proof that identity does not lie in what we have, what we do, or what others say about us. Jesus announces that Paul is his chosen instrument, that his destiny is found in the plan of God, not just to experience a personal inbreaking, though the personal inbreaking was pretty dang cool, 
not just to experience a personal inbreaking of this kingdom of God, but to bring that inbreaking to others. So now back to that word of. After we kind of look at this word chosen, Paul, in the opening of, of the letter to the Ephesians, says he is called by God an apostle of Jesus Christ. There's possession and relationship found in the word of. Not an apostle for Jesus, but an apostle of Jesus. His identity isn't found in what he did before the power of Jesus came upon him. His identity isn't even found in what others say about him. His identity is now found in the reality that he belongs to Jesus. He was sent by Jesus. And any power that he has is delegated from Jesus. This is the movement, or at least this is the demonstration of the movement from chaos to order. The movement from conflict to peace. No longer is he living for himself. No longer is he living the life that leads to death. He's living in right relationship with God. Not because of how good he was or is, but because God chose him. Not just him, though. What we're going to find over the next 12 weeks is how this extends to us. And a key to that also is the, the extension of the word of to the direct audience for the letter. Paul calls the people in Ephesus God's holy people who were faithful followers of Christ Jesus. Holy people in Ephesus. Holy, not a word that, that means good or pure, but a word that means set apart, which is another way to say chosen. Chosen. God's chosen people in Ephesus. God's chosen people in Billings. Faithful followers of Christ Jesus. Belongs to Jesus. Sent by Jesus. With power delegated by Jesus. This audience, formerly of Ephesus, is now of Jesus. Now we think about that in the same terms as we saw Paul, as we saw Paul met by Jesus, was formerly of himself, became of Jesus. Ephesus was a cultural and commercial center in the ancient world. It was the home of many pagan temples for pagan gods. If you think about where all the people congregated for commerce, they also brought all of their religion to this place. And so Ephesus is like th this hodgepodge of, of paganism. One in particular, the temple to Artemis, which I think is hilarious that the Artemis rocket did not get off twice this week while we're talking about Ephesus. I, it's just kind of funny. But this was considered, this temple to Artemis was considered one of the ancient wonders of the world. It was huge. 
pagan religion was also a source of income for Ephesian craftsmen as they built the things that people worshipped because Ephesus was really the center of pagan worship and this made Ephesus a powerful city-state. This was a really powerful community because of all of the money that came in and the centrality of pagan worship. Now think about the pressure of that godless and immoral culture, how intense that would have been for the church in Ephesus. If you want to read a really funny story about what happened at the, uh, the, the, this temple of, of Artemis, this um, ancient wonder of the world. You can read it about it in, uh, in Acts chapter 18. I would encourage that. Um, it is really funny to watch the silversmiths kind of lose their mind over what the church was doing and uh, get angry and, um, and just exclaim, people won't worship the things that we create. Um, but there's, there's immense pressure on, those that, on the church and those that are spreading the gospel. This is pressure that Paul felt. This is pressure that, that the church felt. He knew the church felt this pressure when he wrote this letter. And, and this, the, the, the encouragement that comes from this letter speaks directly to that intense pressure of cultural immorality and cultural godlessness that, that is resting upon the church, that the church has to battle every day. This letter comes to the church in the midst of that pressure, and it reminds them of who they are. It reminds them of their identity. Paul, in a message that flows from his identity, he reminds them of their own identity. And as we read this centuries later, with the pressure of culture, we experience the same. What we see from the the book of Ephesians is the answer to identity. The answer to identity is found in the gospel of Jesus. That when that identity is realized, it becomes activity. When we know who we are, when we know who God is, we experience what what we see in these first two verses of of the, the letter to the Ephesians. Grace and peace. The way he Paul finishes, verse two, grace and peace. Grace flows from the identity of God. And grace realized leads us to peace. Peace because of grace. Grace is a gift. It's given. It's not something that can be earned. It's not even deserved. Grace, as William Barclay puts it, is the sheer loveliness of the Christian life and the sheer generosity of the heart of God. While graciousness certainly is a trait of God, grace is the activity of God. I would even go this far. If a person does not know grace, that person doesn't know God. If a person is unable, if a person is unable to act with grace towards other, towards others, that person 
does not yet look like Jesus. Grace is being looked upon with favor and the favor that God looks upon us with is not a favor that's earned, but it's a favor that is a result of unfailing love. This is the identity of God. The identity of God is found in grace and unfailing love. When we are clear on who God is, we can become clear on who we are. The objects of his love and the generosity of his heart. Our identity is found in the activity of God, grace. When we know the heart of God and when we know that the heart of God is for us personally. When we know that, not when we hear it, but when we know it, when we know that that grace is for me, the result is peace. This peace that, that comes from knowing our identity is not the absence of trouble. It's independent of outward circumstances, but it's wholly dependent on our knowledge of our identity. Peace is the opposite of chaos. Peace results from being of Jesus, belonging to Jesus, sent by Jesus, operating with the power delegated by Jesus. When the lies of identity are defeated by the grace of the living God, we're at peace. And when we have peace, we can lead others to the same. So the letter to the church in Ephesus is also a letter to the Billings Vineyard. This letter calls us to defeat the lies of identity and to step into the invitation to be of Jesus. As we turn back to, to worship, I just invite those that, that maybe don't know what it is to be of Jesus, that's not actually made that decision yet, if you're in a place where you recognize the chaos in your life, if you're recognizing the conflict in your life, if you're recognizing all of the things that are out of order, and you're ready for the chaos to end, you're ready for order to come, I would invite you to pray this prayer with me now. Jesus, I admit to you that I have tried to be the author of my own life. I have separated myself from you. I've tried to fill that void with things that are not of you. I confess that I'm a sinner. Jesus, I know that you paid the price for my sin. And I believe that you are who you say you are and that you did what you say that you did. Jesus, I accept you as my God, as my Savior, 
and I invite you to be the center of my order. Amen. If you've prayed that prayer for the first time this morning, I would invite you as we get closer to ministry time, come and tell somebody about it so we can talk to you about next steps, but also that we could celebrate with you that you have come into a life of order, a life of Jesus.